Good morning, church. Happy New Year. It's finally here. Um, what seems to be one of the most longest years ever has come come to an end. And 2020 was interesting, to say the least. Um, it was supposed to be our year, right? Uh, the year we lost weight, the year we started a business, the year we moved, the year of uh, parties and marriages, but that didn't really happen. And, and 2020 will be remembered for the COVID-19 virus, for stay-at-home orders, um, for working at home, for school online, for people getting really sick and, and even dying, um, for racial tension like we haven't seen in decades, for politics dividing families, friends, and sadly, even the church, um, for masks becoming part of our uh, daily apparel, for Amazon packages and DoorDash meals, um, for being on mute on a Zoom meeting when you're supposed to be talking, I'm sure we've all experienced that, um, for FaceTime with friends and family, for having church in, in your home, and whatever else you've experienced during this crazy year, it, it's been tough. It's been real tough. And if you're if you're in need of anything, uh, please reach out to us. We're your family. We're, we're here to help one another, which is one of the most beautiful things that I have seen over this past year in the midst of all this craziness, and that's the willingness of people to help one another. Specifically here in our church community, we've partnered with Second Harvest for about the past five months to provide meals for anyone in need, including um, our, our church community here, but also our local community. Okay, that's been awesome. And uh, as you'll see next week, um, we're getting more involved with Foster the Bay as we have an amazing foster family right here in our church. So we want to um, further, further partner with them. And also other people in our church community have been giving resources and time to others in need. And we're not the only church community doing this, right? Um, it's truly amazing what God has called his church to do during this time. And I think that some have heard his call and responded responsibly. And we plan to continue this way of thinking of impacting our local community and church community into the year 2021. So keep us in prayer and get involved. I'm calling today's teaching, Who's in the Center? And as we enter this new year, with an emphasis on outreach to our local community and inreach into our church community, I believe God has put on my heart the task of giving us and myself a refresher on what a Jesus-centered community looks like. We have to ask, who's in the center of our church community, right? Is it Jesus or is it ourselves? You see, this community of Jesus followers is a family. And it's a family that Jesus invites us into because of his grace and his mercy. But sometimes, right, it seems like we make it about us meeting certain requirements, doing certain things, and qualifying for a membership, and as we read the Bible today in specific passages, we'll see that the kind of community Jesus creates is a community that puts Jesus in the center and moves towards that center, towards himself. The main text we're going to be looking at today is Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. And if you haven't noticed by now, one thing that I like to do is read the whole passage that we're going to look at. So open your Bibles to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17 and follow along. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at, a, at the table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can, a, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This particular story that we just read is one, just one of the amazing stories about this awesome man named Jesus. It's a gut puncher, and it'll mess with everything you thought you believed and knew, but that's okay because that's what Jesus does, right? And a little context about what's going on is that Jesus has begun to announce his arrival. He's bringing crowds um, around him everywhere. Some people are totally stoked about Jesus. They're following him, and others aren't that thrilled. They're like, actually quite scandalized by Jesus, right? And these particular people who aren't really fans um, were mainly the religious leaders, and in that group were these people called the Pharisees, who were kind of both religious and political leaders, and they know about Jesus and about the movement that he started, which leads up to the decision to arrest and crucify him and so on. But what exactly or actually leads to this huge disliking of Jesus, right? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Like, why did it have to escalate to that point? And there's a ton of conflict and tension. And it really all starts with these earlier stories of Jesus starting his mission, announcing that the kingdom of God is here, that God has become flesh. He's taking back this world from the dark, and he's going to start his new family of people around him who respond to his grace and call to repentance, to become new humans. And this is all by following him, Jesus. I mean, just look at the previous verses before our text for the day in chapter 9, where Jesus forgives a man's sins, and the Pharisees are just like, they lose it, right? This is so blasphemous to them because only the God of Israel can forgive somebody's sins and they just don't get it. So there it is. There, it's about Jesus making these exalted claims about himself and what he had the authority to do and who he was. But today, if you were following along as we read the story in Matthew, the conflict is a bit different. It's not necessarily about the claim of who Jesus is. It includes that. But it's mainly about the result. And Jesus is going around starting a movement of people and the religious leaders are really uncomfortable about who Jesus is including in a circle of followers. And Jesus is including tax collectors and sinners. And from the point of view of these Pharisees, this is deeply scandalous that someone who has so much cultural momentum, so much potential, so much uh, great leadership um, would begin attracting these really questionable kinds of people. So now not only are they offended about who Jesus claims to be, but they're also offended at the people that Jesus invites into his family, into the community. And it's because Jesus is calling this family and this community the kingdom of God. But, according to the Pharisees, it's including all the wrong people and the way that they see what the kingdom of God should look like. So that's really what the story is about. It's about how the community that Jesus creates and forms around himself doesn't fit other people's categories about how they see pe the people of God. And Jesus is reconstructing those views, okay? He's reconstructing them, and he's introducing a whole new way of thinking about who's in or who's out, what it means to be part of his family, and it's super deeply scandalous. And just personally, right, just personally speaking here, it, it, it's, 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 been, it's been hard for me. It, 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 it's, it's been convicting. It's really messed with me for the last couple of years, just reconstructing my views to view Jesus' family the way he does, Right? And this story seems to be challenging and redefining our perceptions, right? the way we see what it means to be a church community around the person of Jesus. But before we go back and work through the story a little bit, back to the text, 
I'd like to give us a new framework, give us some questions for asking about the story, and I think that'll help us see the real powerful implication, implications of what comes out of a story like this. So question, how do, I, how do we, how do I identify ourselves specifically as the family of Jesus, okay? When we think of a family or community, we have to think about how you become a part of that family or community, right? And sometimes it's very objective and others it isn't. For example, if my family, right, the Perez family had a family reunion, who would be invited to that reunion? Basically, any person who is blood-related or related through marriage, okay? Now, this is interesting because it's very concrete, right? There's a fine line. Like, I might have some cool friends, some cool neighbors. I might even know someone from the grocery store, but they're not getting an invitation to that family reunion, right? And they're not coming. It's very con concrete, which leads me to a question. Is the community of Jesus that concrete? Now, some of you might be saying, yes, if you believe, you're in the community. If you don't, you're not, which isn't necessarily wrong. But the issue is, how do you know? In that family reunion scenario, we know who's family and who's not. But when it comes to the family of Jesus, is there, and listen, and should there be direct objective appearances or practices that show us who's in or who's out of the community? The truth is, it's just not that simple, right? It's actually quite messy. Are we considered a Christian if we're following and moving towards the center, towards Jesus? Or are we, are we considered a Christian only if we do act and look a certain way. We need to ask ourselves, what are the different ways of forming, a Christian of forming Christian communities around Jesus that have a different relationship to the culture around them instead of fully merging Jesus with a, culture, with a certain culture, for example, Jesus plus American ideologies equals a Christian, we need to make sure that it's Jesus that people are being presented, okay? And so today, today, I believe the church, the community of Jesus, has made other things the center instead of Jesus, and has made being part of his family very, very, very black and white. We made it a lot like the family reunion example, where either, yes, you're a Christian because you do X, Y, Z, look a certain way, and meet the qualifications, or no, you're not because you don't. This line seems to be very clear and about who's in and who's out, but is that the way Jesus wants his family to be? And see, what some churches do, most churches have done, is they put up a kind of list that everyone has agreed upon, right? Which was, was about having had some memorable personal encounter where you realize your own flaws and sin and failures and that you needed Jesus and they said a certain kind of prayer that reflected that need for Jesus. And then after that event, there's kind of like a lifestyle shift of habits or practices that are connected to a certain kind of moral calling or behavior. There's prayer and reading and your, there's prayer and reading of your Bible and attending the gatherings and so on and so forth. Um, and those form very clear, identical attributes, right? Here's how I know that I'm in or out of the community. And that's pretty solid. But, and this, this is it, this is key, if we look at church history, it's never really that simple, right? What church communities almost always do in any given culture is we add things to it and what we tend to add are things that are very unique to a specific culture and place, right? For some communities, you know, for example, in, in Europe, where consuming alcohol, right? I'm not talking about getting drunk. I'm just talking about enjoying a nice glass of wine or beer or something like that. That doesn't determine whether you're like in or out of the community, right? But in some American Christian communities, okay, absolutely, you don't drink. No questions about it, right? Okay? If you drink, you're basically not part 
of the community of Jesus. And I'm reminded of that saying, I'm sure we've all heard this, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with people who do, <laughs> right? And that becomes just as important and just as central to identifying who you are and how I know that I'm a follower of Jesus, okay? Well, I don't do that, so I think I'm in. I think I'm in, right? And though some of these extra things that communities have stressed upon people might be based off the teaching of Jesus, the problem is that we tend to add things to Jesus in order to be a Christian. And I'm reminded of the whole book of Galatians. If you guys have read that, it's an awesome book. We went through it as a youth group um, a year ago. As Paul is basically calling out Peter about the issues between Gentile believers being segregated because basically they weren't circumcised and didn't necessarily follow the Mosaic uh, ceremonial and civil laws, we're adding things all the time in our community. And I don't think that's what a true community around centered around Jesus should do. And honestly, I think Jesus would be pretty bummed to see what we add to be a part of his family. And if we actually read these stories, right, about Jesus, we see that he's setting up something different, much, much different. You see, we have a very clear center in the Jesus community. And in this case, it's the person of Jesus. And when we have a clear center, how do we know that we're in the family or in the community? It's not about a static list of things I've accomplished or the deeds I've done. It's not even about how or about if I'm in or if I'm out. It's this. Am I or are we as a community of Jesus moving towards the center to Jesus or away from him? So let's look at another analogy. Okay, I'm trying to, to make it clear. For me, it helps, right? So I hope it helps you. If we were meeting, right? if we were meeting and, you know, all together, and I asked how many of you do some kind of art, I'm sure a lot of you would raise your hand, right? You raise your hand. But if I asked how many of you consider yourself an artist, that amount of hands would be much lower. And it would be interesting that many people who do some kind of art wouldn't adopt the identity of the term or the, the, they wouldn't identify as an artist, okay? Like, what constitutes being someone an artist, right? Do you have to do it as your full-time job? Do you have to make money doing it? Do you have to perform in front of people? Like, what if you're a really good artist in high school, but now you can't even draw a stick figure? Um, so how would you define being an artist? Well, it revolves around two questions, okay? Two questions. Am I moving towards the center? Which means I keep pursuing it. I keep growing and changing. I would never say that I can't get any better or learn. Maybe, I never sold, uh, maybe I've never sold an art piece in my life, but I love it and I do it and I keep working at it. Or, or here's the second question, am I moving away from the center, right? I mean, maybe you used to be a great artist um, and draw these cool, amazing drawings, but you haven't picked up a pencil in over 10 years. So in reality, you're not an artist. You aren't moving toward the center. Or, okay, you may have just bought your first sketchbook and drawing pencils, and your drawings are just awful, they, they're, they, they're not good, but you're drawing every day, you're watching YouTube tutorials on how to shade and how to sketch and, and so on, that's moving towards the center, okay? And this isn't static, right? There's no defining line of you're an artist if you've reached this goal or you're only an artist if you have these lists, these lists of attributes that are true about you. It's just based off of the movement towards or away from the center and that's what defines one's identity in the artist community. Right, And so applied to a church community, you can have people who were born into it, okay, who are raised in it as a culture, they're fluent in Christianese, like it's not hard for them, it's what they do, it's just how they grew up, but actually in their hearts, they like don't actually care about Jesus, and they're not moving towards him with intention and commitment, and on the other side, you could have someone who's really far away, who is just like, 
Jesus is lame, forget this, I don't, I don't buy that. Or you could have someone who's, who gets invited or attracted to Jesus, and they actually may not even be part of a church community yet, right? Um, but they want to be, and, and they're on their way, they're, they're on a journey, and um, there's something about Jesus that they love, and they want to move towards him, and there's something that Jesus is doing inside of them, and there's movement, and, and, and is that person a Christian, right? Like, do you, do you guys see the messiness or the complexity of what we're talking about here? The strength of that family reunion model, that very concrete model, is that it's clear who's in and who's out. But how do you know who's in and who's out when we're looking at it from who's moving towards the center model, right? Towards Jesus. It's messy. It is, okay? In terms of its social reality, this is messy. But it seems to be more the way that Jesus has for us in regards to his community. So as we go back to the story in Matthew 9, ask the question, okay, ask this. If you were to play out the impl implications of what Jesus is doing with this story, which one of these visions is more consistent with what Jesus is doing in conducting his community? The family reunion model, a very black and white system, very clear system, or the movement towards the center model? So let's read Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, okay, remember he had just healed and forgiven the sins of the paralyzed man. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Any questions? <laughs> right, I love this. It's so matter of fact. It, it, this is not the first time it's happened. It is unique. Um, it happened one more time, I believe, in uh, chapter 2 when he talks to the fishermen. But other than that, Jesus hasn't done anything like this before. So this raises the question of, like, who is this guy? Right? Why would Jesus intentionally move towards and bring this guy into the community of his family, right? the community of disciples? And this is, by the way, the Matthew that is connected to the authorship and composition of the gospel according to Matthew. It also raises the question, what was going on inside of this guy? Right? And it's key that we know where Matthew is physically because it tells his occupation. He's a tax collector. Now, uh, right away, if you were a first century Jew, you would be gasping like... <gasps> What? A tax collector, right? <laughs> in the Pharisees' point of view, right? Matthew, he's on the bad list, straight up. And in their eyes, he should be so far away from God that he has no business being in God's family. But something's going on in Matthew, something that we don't know. And he's surely been hearing about Jesus, right? He's, he's, he's surely been hearing about his teachings. I mean, it seems like everyone did around that area. And Jesus was so compelling to him that the moment he has that personal connection to Jesus— it overwhelms him, and he's just like, boom, I'm all in. Now, in today's world, I'm sure people are already thinking negatively about tax collectors, right? But I think it's safe to say that tax collectors for the Roman Empire to the Jewish people were hated much more intensely. And this is extremely important. For Jesus, who claims to be the Jewish king, right, to call a tax collector to be part of his family is a huge no-no, okay? Now, let me explain this a little more. Matthew, he's not liked by anybody. Okay, you see, the Roman Empire during this time of Jesus greatly oppressed the Jewish people with these heavy, heavy taxes. And they just grinded the Jewish people into poverty. And instead of placing Roman officials in these lands and causing chaos, they hired, the Romans hired Jewish people to rule in their native land for the Romans to keep things peaceful. Right? They wanted to keep things peaceful and not, and not get crazy. And this is why we see King Herod, right? Um, they even hired Jewish mercenaries instead of putting, like, you know, armies out there. And then tax collectors like Matthew. Okay? And back then, the tax collectors regulated their own service charge fee, and because of that, they were rich. Very, very rich. 
and very, very unliked. It looked like this. So a fisherman catch a ton of fish. Matthew says, hey, you guys owe the Roman Empire a tax. Um, and I'll require a service charge for my time, right? A service fee. It could be like 5 7%. He got to choose whatever he really wanted. Um, sounds like, what a job, right? <laughs> and so you can imagine how unlike this guy really was. And Romans didn't care for him, right? They thought this guy has no integrity. Money talks for this guy, right? And the Jewish people despised him and thought he was a traitor. You see, Jesus is amazing. This was no accident. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows that inviting Matthew to be part of his group, his family, has social and political, political implications, not just religious or spiritual. So do we get it? Matthew isn't a good dude, okay? He's, not, he's on the bad list. But there's something going on inside of Matthew that Jesus moves right towards him and intervenes in his life. And Matthew can't do anything. He can't do anything except drop what he's doing and follow him. To the Pharisees and religious elite, this man was so far away, he didn't fit the qualifications to be in the family. But Jesus saw his heart. And once Matthew immediately followed Jesus on that day, he didn't stop. And we know this because he became part of the 12, right? The closest group around Jesus. How scandalous is the love of Jesus? Let's take it a step further. If we flip the page to chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, we see the list of 12 disciples of Jesus. And although he had many more, he chose these 12 as a symbol to represent the new Israel. And I know that you're thinking, a list of names, ugh, how boring, right? <laughs> but legit, this is probably the coolest, most theologically packed list of names you'll ever see, right? Matthew 10, 1 through 4 says, He called him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction the names of the 12 apostles are these, first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. <clears throat> so let's look at this list carefully, okay? There's three names that have additional information about who they are as a person. That's Matthew, Simon, and Judas, okay? And this is very, very key to what we're talking about um, in, this, in this talk, okay? So you think this is a coincidence. No, not at all, right? We know about Matthew, the tax collector. No one likes him. He shouldn't be part of the community of God, but he is. And then we see Z Simon, the zealot, okay? Now, this word might be new to you, but basically Simon was a religious fanatic, he was all about standing up for the Jewish people against its oppressors. And if you Google the word zealot, the second entry says this, a zealot is a member of an ancient Jewish sect that aimed at a world Jewish theocracy and resisted the Romans until AD 70. Simon was a revolutionary. He hated the Romans and the Roman Empire, and he looked to take them down with the sword. So, who do you think isn't going to get along in Jesus' community? You have a guy who worked for the Roman Empire, basically committing treason, and another guy who legit wanted to kill the Romans and anyone associated with them. Yikes. Isn't Jesus awesome? <laughs> but seriously, he's amazing, right? You, you think this was unintentional? No, everything Jesus does is intentional. There's no mistake here. To the outside, only one of these two guys, Matthew or Simon, was in, right? And that was Simon, okay? But Jesus, the true king, says, if you're following me, you're moving towards me, you're in my family. He's choosing two completely different people who cannot be on more opposite ends of the spectrum, right? And he calls them both to follow him. 
Do you see what he's doing? Jesus is redefining what it means to be part of the family of God. It doesn't have to do with traits you were born with. It doesn't have to do with your religious accomplishments. It doesn't even actually have to do with how horrible of a person you were in the past. All that matters is the fact that right now in this moment, Jesus offers you the invitation to follow him and to become a part of his family. And again, not because of anything you have done, but just because that's the kind of man Jesus was and is. Because he exudes grace and a welcomed invitation. And then we look at the last name, right? We forgot about Judas. Judas, and Jesus, knowing that he'd betray him, still has him in his family, which is absolutely insane to me. But the implications of this are that you can seem to be close to Jesus, but actually be so far away. From the outside, Judas was somebody closer to Jesus than anybody else. But actually, he's further away from Jesus than anybody could ever imagine. He's booking it. He's moving away from the center. So question, who is it in your life, part of this community, church community or not, that you just can't stand? That you have so many differences with, so many differences with, excuse me, that you think is out of the bounds of the family or of Jesus' love? Who is your Matthew? You see, Jesus is making a very powerful statement here about what it means to belong to his family. And it's scandalous. I know it's scandalous. If knowing whether you're part of his community is clean and nice, right, it's a liability because it kind of tends to lean towards legalism. And we add things that aren't really part of the core identity of his family. And when we do that, it is clear, right? It is clear who, who, it is clear that we know who's in and who's out, but it's not the right way, I don't think. When we make Jesus the center and not religious practices, we have a crystal clear center. And we have to ask ourselves if we are moving towards or away from Jesus. And this is messy. Again, it's not clear, right? It's not easily defined. And it seems to get messier even in this story. So let's continue in verse 10, Matthew 9, 10. And as Jesus reclined at a table in Matthew's house, this is interesting, right? Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. He's associating himself and identifying himself as a friend of Matthew's. I mean, having dinner with someone is a pretty big deal, right? And Jesus is right there eating with Matthew in his home. But wait, it's not just Matthew. Verse 10 continues, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So now it says that Matthew's buddies showed up and other tax collectors and sinners or people who are seen as out of the community and they're sitting there with Jesus and the rest of his disciples. Now, could you imagine how uncomfortable Simon was in a room eating with a bunch of tax collectors? I mean, what a scene, right? So let's pause. Let's take a second and let's think about the dynamics of this dinner party. All right, you have Matthew who's come to a place where he's moving towards Jesus, right? He, he, he can't justify being a tax collector anymore. Too many compromises that con- conflict with him responding to Jesus and his grace and allowing Jesus to change and transform his life. So Matthew can't be in that work environment anymore and he's got to go. He's got to get out of there. So he leaves, but he still has all these relationships and all these friends with people who are still in that profession and they come to the party. And who knows what they're thinking, right? They're there, so they're probably thinking, oh, this Jesus guy sounds cool. I haven't, I haven't seen him yet, right? He's, he's this new deal. I haven't seen him yet. You might have some people that are like, oh, Jesus is awesome. I'm right there. I can't wait to be there, right? But they're there, okay? And from the Pharisees, excuse me, from the Pharisees' point of view, this doesn't look good for Jesus, right? He's with all these sinners and tax collectors. It looks like he's having dinner with the enemy, just, just straight up unprofessional, right? 
But Jesus sees this as redefining the family of God. He's not threatened. Okay, Jesus isn't threatened by being around people who are sinners and tax collectors. Listen, listen. They know, right? They know what Jesus teaches. They know that he wouldn't agree with the decisions that they're making. But at the same time, they want to be near him. Again, let's take a second and think. These are people who know that Jesus disagrees with the choices that they're making, but they still want to be around him. When does that ever happen, right? There's something about the grace, the integrity and generosity, but also the truthfulness that people are compelled to be around Jesus, even if they're outside of the boundary lines. They know what his teachings are, but they want to be around Jesus. And for the Pharisees, they just lose it because they think of Jesus as a social deviant or this rebel. And he's undermining their social order by doing this. And look how they respond. In verse 11, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, I love how they go around Jesus, right? Why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then Jesus quotes from Hosea chapter 6, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, but, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, excuse me. Essentially saying, I'm looking for people who are shaped by mercy. Not just people who know how to perform religious rituals, but people whose hearts are about love and mercy for others. You see, the Pharisees thought religion and practices was enough, that they were righteous and good with God. But Jesus says, how do you know if you're in tune with God's heart? By the way you treat people who are really, really different from you. And the Pharisees thought they were it. And that anyone who disagreed with them or didn't do as they did were outside of the family. And you weren't welcome into that family unless you first changed and then become like them. And Jesus, again, he counters that and makes an environment where he's the center, okay? And movement towards himself or away from him. And and here's another thing, right? Jesus can even move towards us, right? Like he did with Matthew. That shows if you're part of the family, the movement. The Pharisees believed in mercy, but only after repentance, Torah observant, and law obedience. But the problem with that, right, is that our willpower becomes the center. In their community, it's based on your ability to meet the criteria. I need to become clean before I can become part of the family. I need to do X, Y, and Z before Jesus welcomes me. But this isn't the case. Jesus himself is the center to our community, regardless of your ability or inability. He moved into your neighborhood He walked up to you sitting at that tax collector booth and he said, follow me. You see, Matthew responded to an invitation that he would have never received from the Pharisees unless he played the roles. You know, that might not have been all bad for him, right? Getting out of that job and changing his life, but it makes his willpower the center, not Jesus. Do you get it? Are we starting to get it? And this should completely reshape our sense of what it means to be a community of Jesus Jesus followers. But the story doesn't end there. It's going to get a little bit more radical, right? And and in verse 14, John the Baptist's disciples, they see these dinner parties happening, and they come up and ask, Hey, Jesus, what's the deal here? We fast, and here you are, you and your disciples are, living it up and eating and having a great time with all the wrong people. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because John the Baptist, he's, he's crazy. Right? He's an intense dude. I mean, he, he and Jesus are good standings, right? But he's, he's just, he's intense. He lives in the wilderness. He lives off of 
bugs and honey and stuff and probably looks like a homeless person. And so you can imagine the contrast in livelihood as John's disciples see what's going on here. His disciples are like, Jesus, why aren't you more serious? You come across as kind of lax, right? We're about prayer and fasting and religious devotion. What's the deal here? And Jesus answers. Gosh, I'm laughing because it's such a funny thing. He, he answers with such a Jesus answer and talks about a wedding. Like, what does a wedding have to do with anything? And he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will ta be taken from them, and then they will fast. And Jesus doesn't deny that there will be time for fasting, but right now, right now isn't the time. There's something new and awesome happening here with the new family of God. And the proper response is to celebrate, not to mourn or fast. And, and the imagery of a wedding isn't random. When people get married, two become one by making a covenant, and out of that covenant, new family and new life begins. And what Jesus is doing by inviting Matthew, the tax collector, and even Judas, the betrayer, is he's making a new family of God's covenant people, and he says it's time to celebrate because the tax collector and the sinner are finding that they too are invited to be part of the family of God, whom the religious elite excluded, Jesus included. Amen. And these people are moving towards the center. They're moving towards Jesus. And listen now, their lives are totally getting transformed and turned upside down. It's time for a dinner party. I mean, could you imagine going to a reception at a wedding and being like, no, thank you. I can't eat anything. I'm going to go fast and pray in that corner over there. Like, no, that's super inappropriate. And I think it's pretty rude, right? And these people who are with Jesus, they were shunned by the religious, religious people without any chance. But Jesus is there. Listen, he's eating with them, and he's inviting them into his family. He continues on to talk about clothes and wine, and this is where we'll start to wrap things up. In verse 16, he talks about a shirt that needs a patch, and, and he basically says, if you get a hole in your shirt, right, and you're sad because like your favorite shirt, and, and you patch it up with another part of another shirt that looks similar, maybe same color, it might work for a bit, but then you forget about it, and you know you, you put it in the dryer, and, and the patch shrinks, and it tugs on the threads, and it rips a hole that's even worse, right? That's like a paraphrase, but Jesus isn't talking about garment care, right? He makes you think about it, right? And that's what Jesus does. He, you, have to, you have to sit and think and ponder, like, what are you seeing, Jesus? And, and what he's saying is that you have two things that you're trying to fit together that are just different and incompatible with one another. He's saying, Pharisees, you have a way of envisioning how you form a community of God, of God's people, of how to know if you're on good terms with God, and if you'll receive his grace. But Jesus is redefining that around himself. He's saying, don't try to understand what I'm doing in light of your way of thinking. You got to keep them separate. Jesus is doing something new and different altogether. And then he goes on to talk about the wineskins. Wineskins were made out of leather. And when wine turns from grape juice into wine, when it ferments, it releases gas. And if you have a new wineskin, it's stretchy, right? It can move and, and it could expand and handle the increase of space due to the gas. But if you have a really old wineskin that's brittle, that gas is going to make it explode, right? And you're going to lose the wine and the wineskin. That's, that's no good, right? So do we see his point? And again, Jesus is really making us think about it. His point is that there's something new here, okay? And your identity as part of the community of Jesus does not depend, listen, on your ability or inability to be a good person. That's not at the center. But it's also, it's also listen, not morally wishy-washy, right? Just because Jesus is in a room with people that he disagrees with, the choices that they're making doesn't mean he endorses their decisions. It means he loves them. 
And he wants them to do, he wants, excuse me, he wants them to be in proximity to the invitation so that one day something's going to happen inside of them so that they'll actually start moving towards him instead of away from him. He's saying that's the deal. That's the kingdom of God. And it creates a lot of social messiness, but it's crystal clear when it comes to what this community is really about. In the beginning of this, I said we'd see the G- that or what the Jesus-centered community looks like. This community, our community of Jesus followers, is about celebrating the fact that despite our flaws and failures, Jesus doesn't remain distant from us. Amen. He moves right towards the sick, the sinners, those who know that they need to be shown forgiveness and mercy. And Jesus wants to form those people into a community that celebrates life, forgiveness, and the fact that you're not trapped to your old identity. Whether religious or irreligious, it's a totally new, redefined community of Jesus where He and His grace are in the center. As we enter this new year, we shouldn't want things to go back to normal. We shouldn't be self-centered. We need to be Jesus-centered. We shouldn't be moving away from Jesus. We should be moving and running towards Him. And it shouldn't be Jesus plus this. It should just be Jesus. You see, you can be born into a church community, be as close to the center from everyone's viewpoint like a Judas, but in reality, you don't know Jesus. And you're not moving towards him with any kind of intention or passion or commitment. You're not even making any movement to try and let your lives be conformed to his teaching and letting his spirit empower you to become a new and different kind of person. And there's a lot of us here at Cry Out who are in this position of limbo. Or if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we're not even moving towards Jesus. Maybe we're moving away from him. And what does it even mean to move towards Jesus, right? It means to stop thinking about myself and just start thinking about Jesus and allow these amazing stories to remind me of his beauty and his grace and his wisdom and his integrity and his generosity and his offer to show me grace and make me new. In every situation, we should be asking ourselves, am I moving towards him or away from him? Am I responding to situations and making choices that are consistent with the response to his invitation or am I moving away? And when a Matthew or Simon comes into our community and it's going to happen, am I celebrating or am I judging them based on the prerequisites that I've put on them? There's also this corporate reality, right? Who we are as a community. And and it is complicated because, again, there will be a Matthew, a Simon, and a Judas in our own community. And we'll have people who disagree about all kinds of things. But what matters is that our community, our church community, is one that is moving towards the center. Not uniformity, but unity. And yes, a Matthew and Simon may differ about politics, their view of Rome, or whatever, but are they becoming more generous? Are they becoming more loving to people that they don't like? Are they becoming more merciful, humble, and more in love with Jesus? And if we do that, we'll find out that all these differences we have begin to pale in comparison to the unity that we find in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional because I've just seen so much division lately. So what does it mean? Hmm? What does this all mean for you personally? I can't really answer that. But Jesus in his spirit will show you and guide you towards himself 
So be ready. Be ready when he says, follow me. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for being a gracious, merciful, and loving God. You are so amazing. And I can't believe that you have allowed me to be called your son and a part of your community. And as we start this new year, may we look to be more and more like you, a community that is moving towards you. And may others outside of this community be attracted to the invitation of grace and love and transformation. We lift up this new year to you. Protect us and guide us as we go through another year. And may we bring glory and honor to your name. Amen. <clears throat> as we end, um, I, I have two things. And, and one is, as we move towards Jesus, right? As we try to be a, a Jesus-centered community, moving towards the center, we need to learn about him. And that is done through prayer, fellowship, and reading the scriptures. And since we started a new year, I want to challenge our church as a whole community to join me in reading through the Bible in a year. Now, there's tons of different ways you can do this. Um, you can Google it, just Bible in a year plan or whatever. Um, but you should get into it. And this will be great for families and individuals. You can do it as a family or you know by yourself. I personally use the Read, Read Scripture app. You can find it on um, in the App Store. Um, like I said, there's other ones. Um, but I will put a link for the Read Scripture app um, on in this information for this video. Um, it also the reason why I like the Read Scripture app is because it includes videos from the Bible Project. And um, if you follow another link that I'll put, um, you can download a reading plan from the Bible Project's website. Um, it would be so awesome to do as a community, right? Um, and lastly. We talked about the family of God all day, the community. And there's no prerequis prerequisites to be in his family. All that needs, all that is needed is to believe in Jesus as a true king who came to live and die, to bring a new covenant between God and man so that we can have a relationship with him and to move closer and closer to Jesus as you learn more and more about him and fall more and more in love with him. If you want to be a part of this family, if you want to accept this invitation to follow Jesus, can you just repeat this prayer after me or with me? Dear Father, you are good, gracious God. I know that I am undeserving of your love and grace, but I thank you for saving me. How many become more and more like you to love others above myself, to show grace and mercy, to submit myself to your will. You are the real King and you are the Lord of my life. In your name, amen. I love all of you guys. I miss you. I can't wait until we get to meet again. Um, but until then, Happy New Year. Love you. See you soon.